You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. We are on the unceded territory of the Lenni, Lenape, Canarsie, Shinnecock, and Moonsee people. We acknowledge the many indigenous nations with ties to this land, and we recognize that the Lenape still call Manahata home. This week, we're sharing work and stories from indigenous documentarians, poets, and performers who are setting the art world and its history of cultural and historical theft on fire. Decolonize your mind and the rest will follow in Brooklyn, USA. So my name is Sarita Hector, and I was born in the east coast of Canada, New Brunswick. And now I live in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I'm a dance artist and also teacher. My practice is in contemporary dance and also contemporary ballet. I identify as Afro-Indigenous or mixed race, Mi'kmaq, Black, and French Acadian. My family is all from Eastern Canada. And then before that, there's this really interesting blend of people, Mi'kmaq and African-American that came together to basically look more Eurocentric. So that's part of my family history and part of my, my practice now, the fact that my ancestors tried to not be who they were in order to survive. Being in classical ballet, it was always this feeling of wanting to be part of the group, but never really succeeding. When you're auditioning for larger dance schools, you have to be a certain body type. I had no idea when I was auditioning for these things that it was just so systemically ingrained that I would never, ever get to where I wanted to go. When I was doing dance in high school, I knew I, was a, uh, I, I had a body type, but I didn't know that that was the wrong body type. It was after rejection after rejection that I was like, okay, wait a second, right, there are limited people that look like me on stage. I started Black Ballerina in 2019. It's about my personal experience and my relationship to race and also to classical ballet. When we're talking about dance institutions, there's the older way of saying Here's what we need to look like. Here's what we need to do. Here's the way we need to practice. So I wanted to kind of let go of structure. The second half of Black Ballerina is all about letting go of perfectionism. It's all improvised. In that moment, I asked myself, what does it mean to dance like me if I 
didn't think about all the teachers that yelled at me, if I didn't think about the people who said I had a big butt and blah, 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 and my skin was too light, or my skin was too dark, or my hair was too curly, or, you know, you know. But I also think it's a universal idea too, you know, how do we all try to fit into everyday life and what do we do in our everyday lives in order to please or just kind of make our way through the space. Arts institutions are now reconsidering or considering how they are navigating in the world. Now, on the flip side of that, we have to talk about the ideas around tokenism that are happening within arts institutions. When we're talking about artistic practice and arts institutions, it's not just enough to have a three-day residency where you feel supported in those three days, maybe you get an honorarium, but then it's all gone. Land acknowledgements have become a really interesting practice, I would say, because some institutions are doing, in my opinion, what I think the land acknowledgement should be. Not reading from a paper saying, hey, my name is so-and-so, and this is my family history. I come from here, I come from there. Right now, we are on this land here, and this is what's happening here, and this is why this is important to me. That is what I think land acknowledgements should be. The recording of Black Ballerina took place on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Citadel and Company and Harborfront Center are grateful to have the opportunity to work, create, and share on this land, and would like to express their gratitude to its original artists and caretakers. When I think about when I do land acknowledgements, how stressed I am because I think about my ancestors and like, you know, I want to make them proud. If they were to hear this, would they be like, okay, yeah, approved. Or would they be like, oh, she just read off of a piece of paper and it wasn't even her words. Well, here we go again. The effects of colonialism repeating themselves. And that's totally what it is sometimes. That's totally what it is. Oh, we, we made sure we did the land acknowledgement every single show. We can make sure that we put that in our next application for funding. We did that. Well, what else did you do? going back to like the long-term support. Where is that for artists or for makers? I think it's difficult to decolonize arts institutions. A lot is gonna have to happen for ballet to change. 
We have to think about how institutions are working, who we're taking in, what does the demographic look like, who's paying for these things, who's donating their money. And then it's like, oh, well, you placed a, a black person as the artistic director. Yeah, but who are the donors and what do they want? I do think decolonizing dance spaces is possible. I do. But I do think that right now there is a battle between the old ways of being in dance and the new ways. There's this idea of the old typecast way of casting things. And then there's this new awesome movement of people saying, oh, we can actually just throw all of these gender and racial ideas about who was supposed to play who out the window and totally reconfigure everything. So I think it's possible, but I do think it's the 80 year plan. Hashtag 80 year plan because it's gonna take that long. Like it's the next 20 years are gonna be people that are saying, hey, wait, no, we can do it this way. And then another 20 years of people being like, oh, maybe they're right. Another 20 years of people being like, okay, this is how we can navigate funding. And then 20 more years, okay, it actually works. Sky Hopinka is an artist and filmmaker. He is a Ho-Chunk Nation national and a descendant of the Pachanga Band of Luiseno Indians. In 2017, Hopinka released Dislocation Blues, a 17-minute documentary reflection on his time at Standing Rock. Here's an excerpt of Sky Hopinka's Dislocation Blues. I stopped thinking about my body there, if that makes sense. I I stopped worrying about um, how I looked. That gender anxiety I had was more about roles. It was more about how I fit into traditional roles at first. Um, until Two-Spirit Camp took me in, and I stopped worrying about, like, like, I stopped worrying about me. My brain, like, now it's back to that sort of individualistic, oh, me, this, like, I, that, you know? Back then, it was just us. It was, it was my friends. It was, this body was just a body. It was, it was just something I would I would use to get from 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 where I was sleeping to Media Hill so I could call my mom. It was something that I would use to speak sometimes. It was so much more about my dreams and how I fit in with like everybody else. We all seemed to be having the same dreams, the same pieces. Our stories were different, but they seemed to fit together like perfectly. 
everything was right and everything Hey, how long you been here, bro? Cause I'm back to camp. And, and I tell you something, I, I eat better here than I ever eat anywhere else. <laughs> Yeah, I said my daughter was crying for me. Looking at a picture of me, hugging it and saying, Dad. <laughs> she, just, she just turned one. I came here for her too. Came here for, came here for you. <laughs> I'm to give conversations. It was, yeah, it was scary. We finally got into camp when it was finally, like, dark. Uh, but I guess on a more positive note, driving in and seeing Flag Road, seeing all the banners, seeing Palestine stands with Standing Rock, seeing We Are Unarmed, seeing all the nations, all the... All, indigenous or not, just gathered together in solidarity. It was dark, but I could see all of it so clearly. That was what it was like entering Standing Rock. Yeah, so it'll be like a big horseshoe that goes around all the way to the shoreline up there. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. So we're going to take this line and move it all the way to that water's edge up there. Every day is a different person, you know. Meet, meet someone new every day. And they're all thinking the same thing you're thinking, you know. They all want, want to happen the same thing I want to happen. Everybody's the same, you know. To me, that white guy there is an the Indian, you know. Here, you know. Yeah. Other night, outside of camp, I wouldn't be getting along with them. <laughs> I'm start calling out to shoot you guys, no dapple or dapple workers. <laughs> outside the camp, you know. But here, you know, they're brother and sister here, you know. One big family. Feels good, that's what it feels like, you know, one, one big family. Except for the guy we just seen, the guy I followed. He's walking through a camp over there that they probably don't even know it either. Yeah. He'll be coming back across. Okay. Love to. They're trying to find the easy way in. As soon as they get enough of them, they're going to break our camps down like they did the North Camp. What happened to North Camp? I have no idea. I came here after it was happened. But I have a feeling they're in here somewhere. That's why the airplane ain't cruising.
don't know. That's like, I keep going off on these little stories, but that was like one thing that happened that I'd be reluctant to talk about with anyone who's not, who's not native, who's not been a part of any resistance movements in their life, you know? And I guess they're not really used to that because all of media and all of representation and all of, all of like our, even as like, bases our in our country's infrastructure is completely catering to the white world's rules everything for them is 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 for them everything for all of us is with them in mind i guess so coming to this land where there's no roads designed the way the way the rest of the country's roads are designed where there's no houses designed the way the rest of the country's houses are designed. And expecting everything to exist the way you 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 yourself has have existed your whole life. I suppose that is really jarring for people coming from that particular location of of, of privilege from that particular tower. because the guy that's standing in front of us is insecurity. The guy on the phone, they see it too whenever they, everybody gives interviews. This is when I walk away, someone they're gonna come talk to me. Yeah, everybody has their own securities, you know? Insecurities too, you know? I don't know if, if, if Standing Rock would have happened as fast as it did you know back in back in the day of even just like dial up you know the way we've been kind of conditioned with social media I feel like that had a hand in the way we communicated our those rumors and those uh the hearsay like everything was so fast all the time like even without like cell phone signals we still managed to make it go so fast all the time I feel kind of the same as I did back when I was in camp. That whole, like, trust no one, like, no one person is the authority on this because some events have been written down and shared and, and, and sort of, like, made their way into, like, collective consciousness and they're just not, like, accurate. It was good. It was like this is where it's supposed to happen. You know? 
and show the world how many dots done. <laughs> to know about this, you know. There should be more here. All the way over to the river over there. It should be that long of a camp. I feel like there's a bit of nostalgia to it. Maybe I'm wrong, but even just this this like, we evacuated in January, but... But I keep forgetting bad stuff that happened. To... My ability to speak. Like, and I forget that because... Because my time there, and I don't know if... And I, I, I don't know if this is the same, I can only speak for myself, but... My time there is now being sort of cast into this magical, rose-colored nostalgia. But it was like this. I don't know. Do you think that was, like, accurate, the... the... critiques, the criticisms, and the reasons why we wouldn't... we don't... we're reluctant to crit criticize? Kinds of different people here, right? Yeah. From all over the world. It's good. The more people that leave, the more people come in too. Tonight our skies are going to sweat lodge or gallows. I'll say some prayers over here. <laughs> can, we, can we end the interview? When I'm outside, like when I'm outside, like just walking, it doesn't feel over. Because I'm, I'm moving the way I did. You know, like I like, I don't know how to explain that in like, how to translate my brain to English, but, uh... It helped me realize that it's like, you, you, no one person is the authority on anything. You know? It's... It's a story that has to be told by everyone, by multiple people.
Hi, Mike Nunania Tanea Winder. My name is Tanea, and I'm going to be sharing a poem that I wrote during the pandemic. I wrote it when I was just thinking about grief and grieving and moving on and just revisiting my past and thinking about my childhood and how music was such a huge part of how I came to be. I remember listening to you know, Guns N' Roses, The Beach Boys, Journey with my family. And I wrote this poem based on a memory of one of the Journey songs that we listened to. And this poem is called Uncharted Territory of Grief. Summers meant sticking my arm out the back of a res car. No other windows rolled down. Consequences of a mechanic, some stranger's calloused hands left us with sticky summer's sweat dripping from our foreheads. I waved to make-believe friends and hungry ghosts. My arms danced against the wind, taking comfort in the resistance of warm desert air. The ghosts sang along as journeys, keys, and bass blared through a battery-powered boombox. The car hugged the highway curves like a child holding its mom's hand, afraid to walk alone in the dark. Our grandmothers told us stories of the desert, how giant serpents laid on mountains to create canyons. Imagine earth crunching under the weight of unbearable sadness. Imagine what it feels like to collapse into an uncharted territory of grief. As young girls, we learned the tale of a mother who cried so many tears she created a lake in the middle of the desert. Today, she sits in stone beneath a star-stitched sky, holding up the otherwise untethered blue. Last month, I read an orca gave birth to a female calf who died 30 minutes after entering our world. The orca carried her dead calf for 17 days. Tethered by grief, hers the price paid for love and loving. At 34, my sister gives birth to her first child, a winter-born boy. In recovery, my sister asks if she can walk yet. Her nurse says, wait until your legs are yours again. I wonder who and what I've carried and carry for days, months, years, grandmother, Take me back to your childhood where you sang Blue Moon in boarding school, where you won the talent show. Take me back to 17 when my back first curved into an S, the serpent inside me coiled under grief, my scoliosis stopping any sports outside of prayers and inside dreams. I wish we'd had more time. Take me back to the day my fingers learned the blues until chords callous their tips, the electric progression of ain't got no home etched into my body's memory. Take me back to when we were all children given songs to sing, the ones you proclaimed were anthems, predictions for how 
we would love. Take me back to when we were all children saying, let's pretend. We'd yet to swim through grief. Our spirits hadn't been crushed by fists breaking through bedroom walls and I could still hold your hand in the dark. Let's pretend our ghosts have been fed. Let's make believe our hearts are ours so we can walk again. Reverse the journey. Play back the boombox. Rewind the cassette tape to our favorite part where we all sing along to the na-na-na-na-na-na. Until my lungs can remember what it's like to breathe in a world where you are still here. And I am still waving at ghosts through the back window singing, now it's your turn, girl, to cry. The way I write is I write in English first, and then I, what I do is I kind of pick words or phrases and then translate them either in the Yaqui. I even put a couple of Spanish words in them, or, or the Maya, or Quiche, the Mayan language, one of the Mayan dialects. So I do that just to, um, I don't know, kind of give it my acknowledgement of who I am and my ancestors and just uh, remembering where my roots come from. I may not know everything. I don't pretend to know everything, but as much as that I can give of me in, in a true sense and form, whether it's just a, you know, a happy little song or something more serious, I want it to be authentic. My name is Sunny Moreno. I'm Maya Apache Yaki. I'm originally from the West Coast and I live in New York, Staten Island. My first medium was theater. That's what actually brought me to New York, musical theater. And during my time here, I co-founded a group called Yulali, which is a, a trio of uh, indigenous women's acapella group also doing music for film and podcasts and and whoever asked yeah uh, my first language was Spanish and so I didn't speak English my my mom and my stepdad were from Mexico and um, uh, my biological dad is from Arizona the Apache and Yaqui so I grew up um, speaking Spanish I learned English by listening to music. Brenda Lee was one of my favorite singers. I'm sorry, so sorry that I was such a I didn't know. And so it wasn't until like first grade that I really started to grasp the English language and realize that music was pretty much storytelling. Yeah, I would learn these songs and then just pantomime them. And uh, I remember having a, an idea of just turning the car lights on at night and then doing these shows for my brothers and my friends. And 
when I was in high school, I had a great teacher that kind of pushed me along and dared me to audition to this, this new play that was opening in San Francisco. And it was Hair, the musical Hair. When the moon is in the step of house and Jupiter aligns with the Mars. I went and auditioned and long story short, I got the part of Chrissy. And so um, it was pretty neat. <laughs> And being, you know, I was at the time of the 60s, you were, you know, there was always uh, protesting and rallying. And I thought it was a, a cool job to have because I could sing and protest and get paid. This experience kind of opened my eyes to what what theater, real theater could be, could be. But at the time, I wasn't thinking that that was an interracial cast. I loved Shakespeare and I thought, oh, I'm coming to New York to do Shakespeare. Well, lo and behold, they weren't casting people that looked like me <laughs> to do productions of, of Shakespeare. So um, did a lot of off-Broadway shows and, you know, I, I, I had like a little family. It was really happening down in the Lower East Side and I was living on, well, what's known now is, as Soho, but back then it was pretty scary. You know, it wasn't uh, as nice as it is now, you know, but on Broadway and 13th Street, you know, right off 13th Street, they had a the American Indian Community House and they had their own gallery. They had social services there for natives and, but the art component was, was really huge. And that's how I, I met everyone pretty much. And, and um, it was a, the native community within New York City. I mean, it, it was pretty vibrant. I, I met Kuda um, Fay, an indigenous woman through the native community. Um, she came in and introduced herself and, and we thought, oh, let's, you know, we, we loved, um, you know, Sweet Honey in the Rock and, you know, the same kind of like acapella women's group. We thought, well, this would be kind of fun to, to explore this, you know. And so we started putting songs together. I, I didn't grow up on a reservation or, you know, or even really knowing my culture because a lot of the time, you know, I had no one to ask. But when I did ask, it was more like, well, you know, you're an American, you have to, there's, there's no point in asking, you know, because, um, you know, I, I started saying, well, I feel different. Who, 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 <laughs> where am I from, you know, and, uh, Oh, you're from us, you know, I was like, no, no, really, I, I feel like I have something, I'm from somewhere. You know, people taught us songs, you know, the, uh, so we would kind of change them up a bit and 
add the harmonies and, and kind of give it kind of like a soulful, more of a soulful sound, you know. And um, so all of that combined, that you know, that soul, and but yet the um, the component of the native vocables, you know, with the drum or the rattle made it pretty different and unique. everyone has their own interpretation of the kind of music right you know it's like every artist has their own flavor we're all vibrating in certain frequencies and 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 so the songs become a bit of them and whatever the culture is whatever the the nation will come from that whether it's with language maybe just a few words or maybe the whole song would be in a language but you have that sense of culture that's that's coming through the artist and then you have groups like um out in in new mexico native roots it's you know reggae but it's native reggae we've been rolling through the mountains and the mesas and the canyons and the pueblos that's what I love about when you know you have native artists that are you know taking their culture and making this music in the way that they they that moves them. Travel across this globe to see the same indigenous face. We share the same ancestral space in this time. What's yours is mine. What's mine is yours. From the desert ocean floor to Mali seashore. I, I think it's great because that, that just leaves the door open for so many types of music and we can celebrate each, you know, each and every one. It's all about story. It's telling the story, storytelling, making it your own, you know, um, an expression of how you want to share an experience, you know, that may have happened to you or, or what you hope to, to accomplish in, in you, know, you have the creation stories, but you also have the stories that are developing now, you know, um, and keeping the story is, is, uh, is really important because, you know, in, in oral tradition, I mean, that's, that's, that's how we learn and, and to be able to keep that going is, 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 is important. When people are sincere with their stories and, and coming from a good place, it makes it, I don't know, personable. And we're all so fragile right now that, you know, it's kind of comforting to have these stories and songs and, and be able to celebrate one another. I think we should celebrate one another a lot more than we're doing now.
Welcome to Griffin's Corner! This week, we are talking about indigenous artists. Right now, as I record this, I am standing on Onondaga land. Maikahi Tubbs is a cure native Hawaiian living in Brooklyn. He is an artist who works on found items. One of his pieces, Toy Stories is made up of plastic that Mike Ahi found at Dead Horse Bay. It is an eight-foot-tall sculpture. Inside the sculpture, you can see a beautiful toys, but from the outside, you can see that it's made of plastic. Tubbs says it's a beautiful nightmare where nature and garbage intersect. A lot of his work focuses on the effect of pollution on the oceans and coastlines. He has helped clear over 2,000 pounds of garbage from the Hawaiian coast. Wow! Thanks for listening! Brooklyn! Cut! Brooklyn, USA is produced by me, Karel Palmer. And me, Emily Bogosian. And me, Shirin Barahi. And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Mayumi Sato. With help this week from Brick Radio Junior correspondent, Griff City, Taylor Cook, Lauren Germain, Sky Hopinka, and Tanea Winder. If you want to tell us a story or somehow end up on our podcast, check the show's notes for a link to a guide on recording a voice memo on your mobile phone and sending it to us on the internet. If you like what you hear or think we missed something, comment, like, share, and subscribe. And follow at BrickTV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit www.brickartsmedia.org radio. But Aaliyah also has a snake in her video. Aaliyah had a snake in her video. Britney Spears had a snake in her video. And I thought, who directed these and which one came first? Probably Aaliyah, no? I think Aaliyah too. But I don't know. <laughs>